St. Leo 360, a 360 degree overview of the St. Leo University community. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the St. Leo 360 podcast. My name is Greg Lindbergh. Here on this episode of the podcast, we are featuring a recording from the Mission Driven Leaders Conversations on Purpose series here at St. Leo University. And this particular recording is from the first installment of this series, uh, which was an event held back in February. This event features Sarah Lynn Davis, who is the chief of the Memphis Police Department, as well as a 1998 alumna of St. Leo University. So let's go ahead and turn things over to Dr. Jeff Sinise, the president of St. Leo University, who is joined by Dr. Mark Gesner, the Vice President of Community Engagement and Innovation here at St. Leo. And uh, it was Dr. Sinise who provided some opening remarks. And then Dr. Gesner gets into the discussion with Chief Davis. So we have a nationally recognized alumni here. So Chief Davis has, has spoken all across the country, has been on the national news and so forth. Uh, there are about 4,000 chiefs of police in the United States. About 9% of those are female. About 8% of those are African-American. It's very unique to have the honor that St. Leo has and, and her honor to be uh, a chief of police of a major city uh, in the United States, Memphis, uh, Tennessee. And it's amazing that she took the time to come here and, and speak with us. Um, 35 years. So students think about that, 35 years from now, you could be the chief of a major city. The reason we're bringing our guest leader here, she's not a guest lecturer, our guest leader here, is because we want to demonstrate to you, the chief wants to demonstrate to you what's possible in your future, pretty amazing. She does policing in the right way and has led policing in the right way, which means it's research-based, which means it's data-based, which means you're looking at all sorts of technology and ways to improve the way you respond to your community. On top of that, very community-oriented in terms of police building relationships with the community. You'll hear that, I'm, I'm certain. The chief started as a patrol officer in Atlanta. Dr. Neely, I know, is in the back who was also with the Atlanta PD, but that's the way you started policing. That's that's how everyone starts. If you know you work in the restaurant industry, you start washing dishes maybe and, and work your way up to being a cook and so forth. Uh, policing starts by patrol. You understand policing best if you understand what your line officers are confronting in the community. And Chief started that way in, in, in Atlanta. She commanded a special operations unit uh, SWATs and gangs and all sorts of other special operations. Again, I would argue that that's pretty unusual for a, a person, uh, uh, African-American person, not in some cities, but a female to be in charge of SWAT. That's unusual in the United States, at least in my experience, and I've only worked with 20 or so police departments 
never seen that uh, in any of those 20. Uh, she led the use of using uh, video and creating a network of cameras within the city where uh, this sort of, they call it sometimes passive policing, where you can see what's going on in the city without having patrol there and take advantage of what exists in the city. So Chief is a very, very much an innovator and has been on the innovative edge of policing in the United States in some of the biggest cities. After leaving Atlanta, she was chief of police for uh, Durham, North Carolina. And in 2021, she was appointed chief of police of Memphis. Uh, chief is a graduate of the, uh, the National Academy at the FBI. That's a big deal to be a graduate of the FBI National Academy, as well as Perth training. Police Executive Research Forum is a executive uh, training institute that's existed since I think about the 70s, something like that, where it's experts in policing and policing leadership. Chief could probably teach in Perth, but you get the idea that they come together and they, they really elevate their leadership practice in, um, in policing. A few more things that I want to highlight. Uh, Chief has testified before the Senate and, and even recently with all the situations we have going on in the United States, uh, they're looking to Chief Davis as a, as a leader in that area, helping with police use of force and, and police response. Uh, she's been on Good Morning America, been recognized by Oprah, Oprah Winfrey and the city of Atlanta, among many others. So when I was thinking about Chief Davis last night, when I, when I was driving home, I was reminded of a quote by uh, James Baldwin, who's one of my favorite authors. Those who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by others doing it. Chief Davis is doing it. Thank you so much for being here, Chief, and we really appreciate it. Wondering if we can start the conversation with a little bit about your, your path. You can share some of the trajectory and key influences along the way. Okay, well, thank you. Again, thank you, uh, Dr. Kessler. Certainly, thank you, Doctor. Um, we have uh, had a wonderful time over the last 24 hours just trying to get to know each other a little bit more, and it's just a blessing to be here on this campus. Um, one of the best things that could have ever happened in my life was St. Leo University, and I'm not just saying that. Um, my experience here was part of the trajectory in my career. But I'm one of six children um, to a military family. My father was a, a career army man, and um, he was one of the first African-American men to be um, accepted into special forces at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, something that I'm very proud of. And I think you know a lot of my father's success in the military it's, it's, it's part of who I've become, you know, someone who has had um, just uh, ingrained in um, a sense of patriotism to our country, a sense of civic duty, um, because my parents raised us that way. And um, early on as a teenager, my, my, my mother used to think something was wrong with me because I, on Saturday mornings, I was always watching cop shows, you know. <laughs> Uh, today, maybe Law and Order and Cops and some of those, but during my time, 
It was Hill Street Blues. Uh-huh, I see some heads nodding. You, baby, you babies don't understand. <laughs> Miami Vice. <laughs> okay. So um, I was infatuated with criminal justice at the time. And I didn't know that, you know, just that level of, of um, being interested in, in, you know, those types of shows would really be part of, you know, who I would become, you know, literally. Um, so um, being raised in a military family, we traveled a lot. You know, my dad would always travel ahead of us and he would always go and set up house. My mother was a housekeeper, almost unheard of these days because most mothers are working too. But my father would not allow my mother to work. He wanted her to take care of his six kids. And she did that. And I would argue to say that my mother was probably more of a soldier than my dad was <laughs> because we gave her a time of it. And um, we lived in Okinawa. My sister was born in Germany. Um, we spent time in Europe as well. And um, we settled in the Atlanta area. That's where my mother and father were from. And I decided uh, early on that I wanted a career in law enforcement, even though I took a detour first. I spent four years in the Air Force. Any Air Force alum in here anywhere? No, no veterans, Army veterans. I know plenty of Army veterans, probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you for your service. All right. So, but anyway, um, my parents didn't want me to go in law enforcement. You know, they said, we don't want that. We don't want that for you. You should be a teacher or a doctor or something like that. But um, as I went into the Air Force, um, I spent four years just moving to different places in the state of Texas. I wanted to see the world. You know, I grew up seeing the world. But my time in the Air Force, you know, Brook, uh, was Brooks Air Force Base in Austin, Texas, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, and then Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas. That was it. <laughs> I said, I'm going back to Atlanta. So I got out of the service and I, and I returned to the Atlanta area and joined the Atlanta Police Department. And um, at that time in my career, there were very few women um, in law enforcement. And especially there were few women that were in leadership positions in law enforcement. And there was a push by not just um, our city, but around the country to hire more women in law enforcement. There were grant funds uh, for recruiting women. So my class, my recruit class, there were 11 women in my class, which was really unusual because that was really a male dominated sort of you know, career. So there were 11 women in our class and out of a total of 37, out of those 11 women, I was the only one to graduate. There were some good women in that class, but we were ready for law enforcement, but law enforcement wasn't ready for us, okay? And we made the numbers, we hired X amount of women, but the real story was how many of those women actually made it through processes and actually became police officers. And so I think my experiences um, early on 
made me really realize how important it was, especially as I became a supervisor to make sure that I was in a position to ensure equity uh, amongst not just women in the career, but anybody who wanted to excel, create an environment that really fostered, you know, uh, moving up and having equal opportunities, whether it was special assignments or whether it was leadership positions as well. And so much of my earlier um, career, I did everything the guys did. I was on the street, you know, as I said, I worked SWAT, I worked mounted patrol, I worked in so many different uh, environments that helped to develop me as a leader today. Um, I had mentors that told me, never turn down an opportunity, because when the door swings open, it may not swing open again, be ready to walk through it. Never turn down an opportunity. And I remember one of my professors at St. Leo said, learn something about everything. That stood what stuck with me throughout my entire career. He said, I didn't understand it at the time, but he said, learn something about everything. And so it's been 35 years. I left Atlanta after 30 years. I left there as a deputy chief. Um, and at the time, I wasn't sure why I was, I was taking on another assignment outside of my comfort zone. That's another thing about leadership. Uh, for me, it's about taking chances and taking risks and not being afraid to be by yourself. Uh, one thing that I tell my staff and my officers on a regular basis that equals fly alone. You don't remember anything else. Eagles fly alone. You never see eagle flying around with another eagle, do you? You see chickens hanging out together. <laughs> <laughs> but you always see eagles flying alone. And once you, you get that in your head that in order to be successful, sometimes you have to be by yourself. So I don't want to take up too much time, but just wanted to give you an opportunity to know a little bit about um, who I am. My father, um, who... Um, like I said, was a career military person um, and was an advocate for making sure that we educated ourselves and continued to excel. He passed away last year. And, um, you know, after, uh, you know, raising us and still being a part of our lives for uh, so many years, it's these types of opportunities that he instilled in us too, that it's not always about you. It's about what you can do for other people. And, and if, you, if you keep that in the forefront of your mind, that it's not about you and it's about supporting and helping other people, then you don't have, it, there's no way that you can't succeed. There's no way that you can't succeed. But sometimes we're, con we're, we're always conscious about ourselves. And it takes time to really, change who you are when it comes to being focused on what you could deposit in someone else's life too. Thank you for the introduction and giving us a sense of the path. One of the things you told me about a couple of influences or many influences, but one of your professors at St. Leo yeah. and also, I'm not sure if it was a chief or someone in the department, when you had some books along with you yes. on the ride. Yes. 
So uh, one of my influences was a professor at, at St. Leo, uh, Art King. And some of you may be familiar with the name Art King. He was in the Atlanta um, campus. But, um, you know, uh, not just art, you know, as a professor, but also one of my previous chiefs. She was the first African-American female chief in a major city in the country. And for, for me and many of my colleagues, it was like she was a rock star. You know, anytime she was around, you know, she was on the cover of magazines and, you know, uh, being a first, especially, you know, during that time, it just made all of us realize that anything could happen, anything was possible. And one thing about her, her name was Beverly Harvard, and um, she went on to uh, work in, uh, in DC and you know several other assignments. But when she was retiring, um, I was really sad that she was leaving because she always uh, took time to, to speak to me and encourage me. And I noticed that she spent more time with me than she did with some of my other colleagues that were, you know, in higher ranks uh, than I was. And she would always send me a, to, to various special assignments to, to go and represent her and receive awards on her behalf and, and whatnot. And I didn't understand it at the time, but she was getting me ready. She was, she was putting me in environments that would help me to be ready for what was ahead. And the day that she was actually leaving, it was her retirement day. And she had staff walking down the hallway with her. They were carrying her boxes. And everybody was just really excited for her. She stopped in the hallway. And I think she could see it on my face that I was happy and sad at the same time. And she held my hands. And she said to me, in a way that I'll never forget, she said, CJ, you have what it takes. She said, CJ, you have what it takes. And the power of words, you know, um, when she said that, I knew exactly what she meant. At that time, I was a lieutenant. But she was basically telling me that I could do what she had done, that I could achieve the exact same thing that she could. And here I am today. I'm a chief of police twice now. And a lot of who I am is because of those people that planted seeds in me to make me believe in myself and saw in me what I didn't see in myself at the time. So, One of the things that is a thread through our Mission Driven Leader Series is, is the mission and, and the values that that's based on. So when you think about your actions today as chief, how do they relate to your values? How would you make the, the connection? Well, I don't separate the two. You know, um, I go to work every day, and my staff hear me say it all the time the uniform is what I do, it's not who I am. And I mean that because we all have titles, and sometimes we get titles get in the way of allowing us to be human sometimes. And um, my values are embedded in who I've been all my life because of, of the upbringing that I had. My, my parents, you know, we, we were in church on Sunday mornings. You know, we were giving back to the community and serving in so many different ways, and it became who we were as adults. And so now, as a chief, 
I use the position that I am I'm in to help influence the work that I have to do in the community. And it helps to influence the, the values and the philosophy of our department that if we get the community engagement piece right, then some of the crime issues will fix themselves. Sometimes we invest more in, in on, on the tail end in responding and reacting as opposed to dealing with systemic problems in our communities. And so um, in the position that I'm in in the city of Memphis, there's a great need for additional work in our community. And a lot of it can't be done by police. You know, a lot of it has to be done in a proactive way where the influence of our officers and the work that they do with young people and building relationships with community members is, is more important than the response to, you know, to calls and make an arrest. And I tell folks all the time, we cannot arrest our way out of this nation's problems. If we could, we've been, in my career, it's been 35 years of arrest, arresting, and we still have problems. But until we focus on some of those root causes in our community, it can't be just the police focusing on that. It has to be other, you know, entities, other government entities, other civic organizations to really just mobilize and come together to uh, help impact change and, and some of the changes, especially for our young people, because a lot of our, our young people, they are environments that it's not their fault. You know, you heard the you heard the saying that 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 um, there aren't bad kids. Sometimes they're bad parents, and it's not necessarily bad parents. It is people who are products of their environment and and products of unfortunate um, circumstances and situations. And I think leading with a heart, you know, tell folks I shoot from the heart. You know, you hear saying I shoot from the hip, but I shoot from the heart. And when you do that, and you're your staff see you and you demonstrate what it looks like and you're true to what you say, it, it really impacts the staff too. They know what my philosophies are. They know we're gonna be about being proactive and doing good work in our community. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, we do have to make arrests, but if we can work on the front end to prevent some of that. To me, that's the ideal situation. I have to say from my highest lens of Vice President of Community Engagement in Innovation, your, your words resonate a lot and it's building relationships. Yeah. Right? You told me a lot about being out in the community in different ways. One of the core values that we have here, as you walking around before, you can see our Benedictine values, is excellence or focus on the value of excellence. How would that, how do you hear that? How do you incorporate that into your work? Well, and I think I, I mentioned it last night at dinner. Uh, we had a great dinner and I and I kept thinking about, you know, I keep mentioning my dad. A lot of who I am is my dad. He's, he's here in this room right now. I know he is. But, um, you know, when I think of excellence, I think of, you know, growing up in an environment where my father was a training instructor at one point in time in the Army. And when he came home, he was a training instructor at home, you know, 
he, he was the, the guy yelling sometimes, you know, at the troops and he was yelling at us too, you know, but we, we took it in stride because it became, you know, who we were as young people in everything we did, we tried to do it in a way that made him proud. He was one that never allowed us to half do anything. I don't care if it was washing the dishes or sweeping the floor, you know, he would come behind us and say, you didn't do a good job at that. You know, you need to, you, you left some stuff over here in the corner. You got wrinkles in your bed, fix your pillow, you know, and now I'm so meticulous, I'm him. You know, <laughs> and my staff are like, you know, you can't pull anything over on the chief. She's going to look at it up and down. But excellence to me is what we all should strive for. We, and, I, you know, I have this saying that we're never as good as we think we are. We're always, we all think we're rock stars, but we really are rock stars. We always have room for improvement. We always have room to learn more, be career learners. You know, I'm a career learner. I'm always trying to learn something about everything, as my St. Leo professor said. If it's basket weaving, you never know. And I remember when I was um, working at the airport in Atlanta, I was assistant commander there at the airport. And there was this class um, that was being offered to executives at the airport. It wasn't really a law enforcement class. But it was for some of the other individuals that aspired to be executives working in an airport environment. And it was through the American Association of Airport Executives. And everybody said what a difficult class it was. Like, oh my, my goodness, if you go through that class, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be pulling your hair out. And I decided I wanted to sign up for this class so that I can get certified in AAAE. And what did I do that for? So I go through this program, and it was a nine-week program. And going through that program, I learned everything from the amount of, of feet is required for a plane to take off of a runway to why, what those numbers meant on the different runways. And it was the most enlightening experience for me. And I became certified in AAAE. And now when I get on a plane, it's a totally different experience. Everybody else is putting in their earplugs and trying to you know, figure out what movie they're gonna watch or what they're gonna play on their computer or whatever. I'm looking out the window to make sure that the pilot is, is acknowledging the safety zone, <laughs> you know, and that those numbers that are out there, I'm saying to myself, okay, that's 360, that's the lane to the east, and that's the lane to the west, and that's the lane to the north, you know. <laughs> so let me ask, so I learned, we all learned something today, I don't know how many of you know, but the AAA e? mm -hmm. is... The Air, the the Associate of Airport Executives, that's American the, Airport yeah. Executives, okay. AAA. Mm -hmm. That's that. Okay, just want to be sure. And so... So in learning a bit about something in, in all these various experiences you've had, you, you chose a role um, to switch gears a little bit to lead major national association yes. in, the, in the Black Law Enforcement yes. Association. Yes. Why did you choose to devote time to that and why was that so important? Well, I was a member of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, No. And I'm also on the board of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. 
And it, it didn't dawn on me until um, later on in my career how important it was to represent um, my career field in a way that influences policy and change. And that, and I didn't realize how important it was for my colleagues, you know, especially my colleagues that don't look like me, you know, for, for me to be on the board so that they could hear a different perspective of what we should or, or should not be doing in this particular career field in law enforcement. And um, when you think in terms of what has occurred in the last couple of years on the heels of, of very various um, uh, critical incidents that you know, we're still trying to get beyond it and, and behind, and we continue to see critical incidents, it's important to have a myriad of diverse group of individuals communicating with each other and working on what change looks like. What does reform really look like? And what are we doing it for? Are we doing it for us? Are we really doing it for the community? And sometimes the community voice isn't heard in our conversations. And as we put together task force and as we uh, work on policies to change, sometimes the voice of the people who are impacted the most is not heard. And so um, my participation uh, for me has been important because sometimes, you know, uh, I yanked the coattails of some of my colleagues basically to say, is this what we need to do or is this what we want to do? And um, have we brought the right people in the room? Sometimes it's bringing young people in the room. Sometimes it's bringing activists in the room. Sometimes it's having uncomfortable conversations. But if we all want to get to a place where we are you know, working better together, we have to get through some of those uncomfortable conversations. We talked um, at the dinner also about activism and some of the influences for you and living through some things and hearing stories from people like Greta Scott King yeah. and others. I wonder that story yeah. if you might share your, your connection to that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned that, you know, I, I lived in Atlanta as a young person. I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade when my, my father retired from the military. So I went through, you know, high school in the Atlanta area too. But there was a sense of, there was a sense of pride, not just, you know, as a law enforcement person, but as a community member in the city of Atlanta, being from the home of the civil rights movement. You know, I had the opportunity not just to really just read about stories and hear about what happened. I worked with, you know, many of the civil rights icons in the city of Atlanta and uh, worked very closely with Bernice King and Martin Jr. and Andrew Young, who's the mayor, you know, in Atlanta, who, who was such a great storyteller. You know, he would take time because if you think about it, um, during, the, during the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King had sort of his lieutenants, if you will, <clears throat> those individuals that a lot of us have heard their names over and over again, John Lewis, Andy Young, you know, um, and a lot of those individuals came out of the Atlanta area. And we used to ask Andrew Young, why was it that, you know, he was one that was very close to Martin, but he was never one that went to jail. 
And it was because Andy said Martin never allowed him to be in the environment of, you know, if they knew that something uh, was going to happen where they would be in an encounter, they wouldn't allow Andy to be involved in that because Andrew Young was the one who had the law degree. Andrew Young was the one that made sure that everybody, you know, uh, was taken care of and to help them get out of, out of jail and so on. But he used to tell us all of these different stories um, about his experiences. And as, as a police officer and a law enforcement professional, you know, I was in charge of many of those activities, especially working special operations every year during King Weekend. We had to coordinate celebrities coming in town, clergy from all over the world, um, you know, uh, delegates from um, Congress, you know, coming to town. And Coretta Scott King, when she passed away, that was one of my assignments. Uh, one of my assignments was to coordinate the homegoing service and the security for Coretta Scott King. And that was probably one of the most memorable experiences for me because at that time we had 120 delegates from Congress to fly down. We had to coordinate them coming into the city. Many of them came in. Uh, some came, you know, in private vehicles, but it was so many we decided let's work on bringing them in on a military hop into Dobbins Air Force Base. 120 flew into Dobbins Air Force Base. We coordinated buses to get to the church uh, for the funeral. And once they arrived, you know, motorcycle escorts, everything that was needed for that um, um, special event. Uh, when they arrived, um, at that time, that was the first time I saw what was soon to be, at some point, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, he was he was there along with every sitting president at that time that was or one sitting president was still alive. Uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, the Bushes were there. Um, Clinton, you name it. Um, everybody wanted to be a part of this this funeral service. And the night before was a wake uh, that took place at Old Ebenezer Baptist Church. Old Ebenezer Baptist Church was the church that Martin spoke in on a regular basis. His father, Daddy King, Mama King, and the entire family were members of Ebenezer Baptist Church, a very old uh, church, but certainly a staple in that community. And so Coretta's body um, was laying in state on a rainy, rainy night. And I mean, it was raining so hard. We just knew people were not going to be standing out in the rain. But the line went up Auburn Avenue, which was at least a half a mile, and then up Peachtree Street. All you could see was a sea of umbrellas until 12 o'clock midnight. People were still outside. But one of the most memorable experiences um, during that time, too, was Oprah Winfrey, um, who had a very close relationship with Coretta Scott King, so much so that um, she actually um, bought a condominium, the top of a condominium in the Buckhead area of Atlanta. And she allowed Coretta Scott King to live in, in this space. They knocked down the walls of three different condominiums. Uh, and created this home for
for Coretta Stack King and Oprah told Coretta that she could live there as long as she lived. And when she passed away, that was the home that um, you know I visited to work with um, their children on the uh, funeral services and the visitation and so on. And the house, the condominium was at the very top of the building. And it was like walking through history. There was a grand piano in the living room with a bust, a beautiful bust of Martin Luther King. There were pictures that had never been seen by the public before, uh, robes that were encased in acrylic. Um, it was like walking through an art gallery, uh, a museum, if you will. But the night that um, Coretta was laying in state, uh, Oprah pulls up in the back of the church, this old church, this gravel parking lot. And the only thing I'm thinking is she's going to be in four inch heels or maybe five. And there's no way she's going to be able to get up this metal fire escape, you know, in the back. So we had to help her to come in and we stopped the lines and she stood over uh, Coretta's body for about 10 or 15 minutes and whispered prayers. Um, they had a relationship that a lot of the public didn't realize that they were really that close and that over really wanted to take care of Coretta Scott King. But it was a, a, a great opportunity. And I, I think some of that experience of being so involved in those individuals that gave their lives that really marched, that were true activists, um, became a lot of who, you know, I have become as, as a leader to respect that and to understand that. I know that was a long story, but I wanted to make sure that I shared that with you. I think watching everyone, they were right along with you. <laughs> I, I want to ask one last question. There's so much richness in, in, this, in your different responses, but so we've got about 80 students here going to graduate, we trust, in the next year or two. So aside from a St. Leo University degree, what do you look for in a candidate when you're hiring? You know, um, I really look for uh, young people, not just young people, anybody who's really um, focused on community service. You know, our work, a lot of people think, you know, all the bells and whistles, the blue lights and you know, all of the toys, we call it, you know, everything from, you know, horses to motorcycles. That's part of it. But a lot of what our officers do every day is just, you know, common types of activities where they're helping someone in an accident. They're, they're speaking to people about how to get out of a certain type of situation. It's not all enforcement, and we really look for people who understand and who can turn, turn, turn it on and turn it off, you know. And when I say that, I mean we wear a lot of different hats. You know, a lot of our, our officers are very involved in the community in their off time. They spend a lot of time with young people. They do mentoring. They have computer labs. They work on as coaches on various types of you know teams and. A lot of that is that proactive work that we know is important. We don't make our officers do that, but it's nice to have young people that are, you know, a part of our organization who naturally understand that um, it's not the bravado that makes the community uh, appreciate us. 
is that one-time interaction, you know, with that community member and how they felt about that interaction, how you made them feel. Did you respect them? Did you take care of their, their issue? And is it one that leaves a, a, a positive um, impression on the department as a whole? After her presentation, Chief Davis took several questions from the audience, which you will hear now. Hi, um, I'm Charisma. Um, thank you for coming. It's really nice to have you. Um, one of my questions are, what are some of the things that you find um, that you found yourself sacrificing um, as you reached a lot of success? And did you find them worth sacrificing as you got the level that you did? Actually, um, a lot of sacrifices, but not just in, in my world. Anything that you want to achieve, you will have to make sacrifices. And some of the sacrifices that I even talked about, you know, last night at dinner is that working on my master's degree, you know, even as a, as a um, law enforcement professional, I spent time, you know, early in the morning. Uh, sometimes, you know, when I had a break at work, you know, studying and writing, and if I was out on a call or it was quiet, I would have books in the car sometimes. <laughs> so you have to, you know, um, think in terms of what are the obstacles in front of you and how do you navigate around them? Sometimes the obstacles can be the people in your life. Sometimes people don't want to see you succeed, you know? And, and it's true. So what you have to do is really think in terms of what are those obstacles and how do I navigate around them? And the sacrifices as it relates to, you know, when I wanted to be with friends and even sometimes when I wanted to go places with my family, not my, you know, anybody, my sisters and brothers, everybody was doing their, we're gonna go to Florida this weekend. Or we, you know what, I, I wish I could go. But unfortunately, I can't. But the ends justify the means. You know, hard work, you know, I can't say enough about sacrifice. So that was a really good uh, question, Charisma. Keep sacrificing. Um, in my recent classes, we've been talking about, um, you know, reform of the department, or people argue abolishment as well. Um, do you feel, we also had Dr. Um, talk to our class, and he was talking about, uh, do you feel that? The police department that we put too much expectations on the police department or like we expect them to take responsibility for certain things yeah. that maybe we as community leaders can handle and do you think that affects how police interact with the community and i and i do i think we need to find balance i think you're absolutely right um you know community members expect a lot out of out of public safety they really do in my career, I've had calls from everything from there's a squirrel in my attic to they delivered the wrong pizza. <laughs> and I'm serious. And, or my, my child isn't acting right. You know, so um, there's an expectation uh, for police to really handle things that they, they, they probably shouldn't. Um, I, I wish that um, we didn't have to have uh, police in schools. You know, unfortunately, in today's environment, you know, schools can sometimes be a dangerous place. And I, I hate to say it, I'm not necessarily talking about universities. I'm talking about, you know, elementary schools and middle schools. And when people say abolish the police, is that is that really a thing that 
that we in in a day and time that we live in right now, if you have a situation that you know you can't handle, who are you gonna call? You're gonna pick up the telephone and call 911. And you're gonna hope that there, there's a nice guy that's gonna come in a uniform, they're gonna help mitigate this situation. So we have to find balance. I do believe that police are too far into some areas that they shouldn't be. You know, but everybody expects a lot, you know, from law enforcement. When I was a young officer, we didn't have to worry about social service. There were social service uh, representatives and officials to handle certain types of situations. There were mental, um, you know, uh, mental illness professionals that, you know, that handle various types of crisis. There were places that you could take individuals that were experiencing a mental crisis today. Not so much. And so now we train our officers on crisis intervention because mental illness and, and, and behavioral problems are so prevalent in our community. But yeah, we need to find balance. I don't believe in defund the police. It's already, you know, uh, crime has um, skyrocketed in many major cities. And the, the country can't afford for police to go and stay home for 24 hours. Just give us 24 hours off the street. It'll be it'll, it'll be a disaster. So we really have to be very realistic about the time that we live in, but we do need to find balance in how we and how we provide public safety. How should law enforcement address the disproportionate rate of arrest among black and brown people more than whites? So um, that's always a difficult question that's posed for me, for me, but I can answer it because I'm an African-American woman that's always in the data. And unfortunately, we already talked about some of the uh, underlying issues in black and brown communities, the lack of you know, jobs sometimes, uh, you know, education, uh, various types of adverse childhood experiences. <laughs> that disproportionately affect minority communities. And unfortunately, in my community, in the city of Memphis, in the community that I left before then, many of the, the uh, violent actors, unfortunately, are our young African-American men. And sometimes, you know, uh, those individuals that are from communities where they haven't had an opportunity to do something different or something more positive, because of the lack of the attention and resources in those communities. So I would love to see, um, you know, less African-American young men and women go, go to prison and jail, but we have to invest in communities to change that. Um, and I've, you know, said, I'm not gonna go out and, 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 and go uh, arrest more white, you know, uh, men and women just so that we can get balanced numbers. The problem is what it is. We we have to really address the underlying problems in our community. Do you think that the amount of police brutality cases brought to the public's attention affects the efficiency of police, such as are they second guessing their use of force during an arrest or an encounter with anyone? So um, I think you know, and, and as I mentioned before. You know, the uniform is is part of what I do every day, but I get up in the morning and when I watch the news, I have the same response as my fellow community members when I see things that happen that make me scratch my head. And as a leader in this 
um, career field, it's my responsibility to put checks and balances in place to manage those types of situations. And I believe that because there's so much attention now on things that, that may have been going on, you know, for many, many years, but social media and this new age of being able to record everything that's happening, sometimes recordings pick up pieces of a situation. Sometimes they are very accurate and they pick up the whole situation. Much of what we see is being addressed uh, by leaders who feel like reform is important, de-escalation is important, and not just de-escalation for our officers, but how do we have safe encounters with the police? There's a class that, um, that I'm familiar with that my organization, Noble, um, is, is doing, it has been doing it for some time, even prior to George Floyd. It's called The Law in Your Community. And that particular program helps young people and police officers understand how important it is to have a safe encounter with the police. What can you do as a community member to help ensure that when you get pulled over, that that's a safe encounter? And what can that officer do? His attitude, um, the, the amount of courtesy and respect that he provides to that community member, what can he do to ensure that that situation doesn't escalate to be something that it doesn't have to be. But we also have checks and balances in my department. Every department, 18,000 police departments. Now, every department doesn't have checks and balances like they should. But now that we have more involvement from our legislators and, you know, and federal entities, national standards are gonna ensure that there are checks and balances so that if there are officers that uh, exhibit certain types of behavior and have patterns of it, we can address that. So we keep data to see, okay, if you got a courtesy complaint three times in one month, nine times out of 10, you're probably being discourteous, discourteous, wouldn't you think? So having checks and balances in place is important, but we've got a lot of work to do to um, impact change around the country. But thank you for your very thoughtful question. As a black woman in a high position, what challenges did you face and how did you overcome them? You want all of them? <laughs> 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 there, there were many, but um, you know, I, I think you have to really have a lot of confidence in yourself too and really know that whatever goals you set out, they're gonna be obstacles along the way. I don't care if they're, um, you know, whether it's a, a, a colleague or being looked over for a promotion or, you know, whatever the case might be, they're always gonna be obstacles along the way. And you just have to know that there's nothing that can keep you from meeting your goals and your objectives and achieving greatness if you stay focused and sacrifice, as, as the young lady here said. But yes, there, there were many. Um, and I think uh, some of them were because, you know, I was the only girl in the class. You know, I graduated and, and I was the only girl in the class. But there were days where I thought I wanted to give up. You know, because I felt like there was this this force that was was literally against me. But I think it's made me who I am. And now that I'm in this position, I'm more cognizant of making sure that there's an even playing field for everybody, not just African-American women, 
any woman, any man. It doesn't matter your, your race or origin. I want everybody that works for me to know and understand that you have a chance at greatness working for me. And I'm gonna do everything in my power to help you get there. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I just keep thinking about our own mission here to boldly confront the challenges of the world through service to others. And I think of your position as uh, those challenges being so urgent. Um, and yet you have such a calming presence uh, when you speak. And, and I wonder just as a leader, how in the face of those very urgent issues, uh, challenges, you remain calm? Yeah. So um, that's a good question. And this brings that this brings me to a conversation that I had with Tasha this morning. Tasha's standing back there on the way in. And we were talking about those uh, times when, you know, everything is going wrong and you're under a lot of stress. And some of you probably heard this before, that sometimes as leaders, we have to be like ducks gliding on the water. <laughs> You've heard that before. Our, our feet under the water are doing like this, but on the top, we continue to glide. And I think that's important because there's so many people paying attention and watching. And if I lose it, my whole team's gonna lose it. And even when I'm losing it inside, I don't let them know. Even when um, I'm feeling uncomfortable, you know, in these positions, I think emotional intelligence is really important. Those of you who haven't taken that class, you need to take one because you need to be in tune to your own emotions and you need to be in tune to the emotions of others around you. So um, it comes with time too. It really does. And, um, you know, there have been many days where, um, you know, the stress is there, but I'm always trying to keep my folks, you know, calm. And I let them know too, especially my leaders, you can't freak out because if you freak out, the whole teams don't freak out. So get it together, you know, and, um, and, and I think that that comes with time. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with that, I think we're going to wrap up this part of the conversation on purpose with Chief Data. So thank you. Thank Very you. Much. Thank you. Al. To hear more episodes of the St. Leo 360 podcast, visit St. To learn more about St. Leo's programs and services, call 877 622 2009 or visit stleo.edu.